Dylan Through the Decades, our mini-series that explores the life and music of the one and only Bob Dylan. In our last episode, we discussed Dylan's arrival to the folk scene, his swift rise to success, and how he reacted to being labeled the voice of a generation during the tumultuous 1960s. This extreme level of fame and adulation did not sit well with Bob, and neither did the crushing pressure and expectations from his crooked management. But in 1966, a motorcycle accident derailed Bob's career, which gave him an opportunity to take an extended break from his relentless touring schedule. He used this time to rest and reflect on his career, and to also record a collection of songs that would be mostly shelved for several years. After he recovered, he eventually closed out the 60s with a Nashville-driven country record, leaving many fans confused about the direction of his career. That confusion would only get worse as Bob entered the 1970s. His first release of the decade was a bizarre double record designed with the sole intention of losing fan interest, which prompted critics to ask, what is this shit? And declare him lost. Well, come on without. Come on within. Yeah! This also launched a 30-year tradition of starting off each decade with one of the worst regarded albums in his entire catalog. Stranger still, Bob waited only four months before dropping his next album, which was widely considered as a return to form. Take a woman like you to get through to the man in me. The artistic whiplash continued into 1973 when Bob accepted an offer to record a soundtrack for a western movie, and then star in it as well. James Coburn. Bill! Chris Christopherson. Come on in, Pat! and introducing in his first dramatic motion picture performance <clears throat> plums recording star bob dylan they say that pat garrett got your number pat garrett and billy the kid in 1974 he changed labels and reunited with his most famous collaborators the band for an album and tour Despite the success, he promptly returned to Columbia Records for his next project. Blood on the Tracks was released in January 1975, and this incredible album would garner as much or even more critical praise than anything Bob delivered before or since. tour to support this album was also a great achievement, both artistically and commercially. Dylan was once again on the top of the world. Now comfortable with his current status as an artist, 
Bob finally agreed to release an official version of a bootleg that had been circulating for years. Although he had recorded the basement tapes with the band in the late 60s, it would first hit the stores in the summer of 1975. His mid-70s hot streak continued with Desire, which arrived in January 1976. But cracks started to show soon after. His exhausting tour, the Rolling Thunder Review, came to a close. And so did his marriage. A painful, contentious divorce demanded much of Bob's time, and also of his wallet. To make his financial matters worse, Bob released an expensive passion project film called Ronaldo and Clara, which bombed terribly. As his finances were in dire straits, Bob rushed through a lackluster album in 1978 and kicked off a new round of touring in an attempt to balance his books. Exhausted, bitter, and even bored with his own songs, it seemed that Bob might close out the decade on a sour note. But much like his final release of the 1960s, his last album of the 1970s was a wild departure from his previous work. While he closed out the 60s with a venture into country music, the summer of 1979 saw Bob take a wild turn to gospel hymns, inspired by his newfound faith in born-again Christianity. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. This turn to religion was no flippant experiment or cynical cash grab. Bob had fully bought into some serious fire and brimstone end times Christianity, which inspired a challenging, yet still beautiful album called Slow Train Coming. Change my way of thinking. But his new religion did not just influence his lyrics. The 1979 tour to support the record found Bob abandoning much of his previous work and going so far as to preach gospel from the stage. And if you can believe it, he was just getting started. As chaotic as the 1960s could be, they were ultimately just a warm-up for Bob's wild, unpredictable journey through the 1970s. So it's time to sit back and pour yourself a glass of Heaven's Door whiskey, as over the next hour and change, my friend Chris and I will chronicle his music and stories from that era. This is Dylan Through the Decades Part 2, Bob Dylan in the 1970s. Put me out, still on the road. left off, basically when he had that motorcycle accident, that gave him an extended break from touring, 
which he desperately wanted. Because, uh, you know, one thing we definitely talked about in the 60s, and I think it's something that follows him through his whole life, is this crushing, inescapable fame. People are showing up at his house, crawling over his fence, knocking on the door, just trying to talk to him about, like, anything that comes to mind. You have that as your day-to-day. And then you have all these people calling you the voice of a generation, expecting you to save the world, which he actively did not want at all. And uh, one quote I pulled from uh, his book Chronicles was when he's describing this point of his life, the end of the 60s, he said, whatever the counterculture was, I'd seen enough of it. And that sort of makes sense when his last record of the 60s is Nashville Skyline, which is like a country record, which wasn't something he had done before. And then he totally changed his voice, so he doesn't even sound like him, um, at least for a while. And I think that was, the, the voice change was at least partially an attempt to sort of lose fan interest, which was a, something he doubled down on for uh, Self-Portrait. Self-Portrait is a double album, like Blonde on Blonde, which he did just a couple years before. But I found, unlike Blonde on Blonde, that Self-Portrait drags. To me, that's my biggest problem with it. Isn't the individual songs. It just feels that that record goes on forever. Wigwam was the only single... Missed the top 40, but you like that one, right? I like Wigwam. I think with the rest of his albums uh, up to this point, there's sort of a narrative strand that kind of goes through all those albums, and they make sense like coherently as an album. Yes, I would say that's yeah, that's accurate, and that's that is absolutely not the case right. here. <laughs> well, unless unless it, unless the 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 narrative strain and why he calls it self portrait is, I, I'm losing my mind. <laughs> this is the just scattered, like you know mildly schizophrenic sort of like weirdness I'm going to put out right now in 1970. <laughs> I am a broken man and here are the pieces. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean it has it has at least two I think solid songs on the album which is Wigwam and uh, I really like All the Tired Horses which opens it. Um, yeah. It doesn't sound like Dylan. You know because this album has the reputation of being one of the worst records ever. So when I put that on and I heard that opening track of All the Tired Horses, I was just like, hey, this is pretty good. Where's all the hate came from? And it took me until I got to the end of the record where it was just like, man, this thing thing takes a while to get through. But I also never really got like, this is the worst thing ever. But the famous Rolling Stone from the guy you like, Grail Marcus, I think, did the famous Rolling Stone uh, review where he opens with, what is this shit? And that's a good line for this record. It is. I think if it was put out as nowadays is like B-sides and rarities or something like oh. that, or oddities or something like that, Yeah, and just understood it as that, I think it'd be fine. So he said that for years and years after this, that this was intentional sabotage, that yeah. he was really trying to get fans to lose interest in him so he could regain some semblance of a normal life. Do you feel that was the mission from day one, or do you think he was like in such a crazy headspace that he made a bizarre album, and then in years later he thought, oh, this will be my excuse for why it's so odd compared to the rest of my catalog? I think it can be both. Yeah. I think that it can be, and I think that's what it probably was, and I think as it's as he's gone along, he's distanced himself from it. I think what it was is, I like this music. Mm. I like what I'm putting out. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm intentionally trying to put out music that I like, that I know that the people who are faithful to my music will not like. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think it's both. Yeah. I think that's uh, that's a, the right way to look at it. You said there's a couple of redeemable tracks. You like Wigwam and uh, All the Tired Horses, which opens it. Are there any other tracks on here that you'd go to bat for? Because there's some interesting standouts, not necessarily good ones. 
He covers Gordon Lightfoot and Paul Simon. I don't think either of his versions are no. as good as theirs, because Early Morning Rain and The Boxer are pretty iconic songs from both of those guys. Well, The Boxer, interestingly enough, my understanding is some people think that was written about Dylan by oh. Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, shoot. Okay. Wow. That he was the boxer. This is even weirder. Yeah. <laughs> Which would make sense also if he believed that. Yeah. For it to be on an album called Self-Portrait. I mean, that's the oh, bizarre thing oh, about it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I like yeah, that. When, when you actually think through it. But okay. no, I mean, uh, I wouldn't go to bat for that song. Yeah. I, I mean, I love Mighty Quinn. Mighty Quinn is on there, yeah. Um, the version on the album, though, is not... My not favorite, the iconic not be my favorite version of the Mighty Quinn. What do you think of the cover of Blue Moon? Well, I was just going to say, I love Blue Moon. <laughs> but the cover of Blue Moon, it, it's kind of like the music he started making in the 2000s, like his cover albums that he was oh. doing with sort of old standards. Right. You know? But not as good. Like, technically not as good. Yeah. The most troubling thing is how inconsistent technically the album is. I think Wigwam, All the Tired Horses, sound they sound good. And, he, and he's back to a normal voice. He's yep. ditched the, the country voice. Yeah, and he, sound, he sounds pretty crisp and clear on this one, so, you know, you can't hit him for that. The last song I gotta bring up is his weird-ass take on Like a Rolling Stone. Now you don't act so, so proud About having the best grounding around sounds like he's making fun of it. It's like a sarcastic, like, riffing on his own most famous hit. I'm trying to think of, of another artist that did something, has another artist done anything like that? Well, It's like an iconic song. I mean, they've done, I yeah. think artists have redone. They do, like, Did Whitesnake do that with, yes. uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they made it much more commercial. Yeah, that's the difference. Different. It's the opposite of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I didn't think we'd be talking about White Snake today, but yeah, there we well, go. Well, in a lot of ways, they were kind of the, uh, you know, the progeny of Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. 
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, all right. So the reviews for Self-Portrait are summed up with what is this shit. And then the reviews for New Morning, which come out later that same year, in October 1970, comes with a review that says, We got Bob Dylan back! The recording process for New Morning, for what it's worth, is one of the album's Bob Details in Chronicles. That's the middle part. And the quote I pulled from Chronicle about this record, he says, Message songs? There weren't any. He's continuing to reject that he's some political messiah, you know, from the 60s. So this is considered a return to form. Again, he's not doing the country voice anymore. And it's like, how the heck do you put out a bizarre record that's meant to drive away fans and then six months later do the album that all those same fans want anyway? Doesn't such a quick turnaround seem a little self-defeating? Was he uh, hedging his bets here a little bit? First of all, I don't know that like Nashville Skyline was as well received by the average fan. Oh, Crit- okay. Critics like a lot of critics liked it. Okay, as being sort of a nice album. Okay, but I don't know that it was loved by the public. Maybe it was. I don't know. I would have to see how it charted and stuff. I have no. Lay Lady Lay was a big hit. Oh yeah, I forgot. I forgot about Lay Lady Lay. But I mean, New Morning doesn't sound like the stuff he did before Self Portrait. It doesn't have the same sound to it. I don't yeah. think as as the work he did in the sixties, the late sixties. And then in terms of it not being a message album. I would push back against that because I feel like oh. if, I feel like if Dogs Run Free, okay, is like proto Christianity Dylan. Oh, that's okay. before he. Oh man, shows his hand out. already. Mm-hmm. Well, let's put a pin in that because we that's yeah. going to be a big chunk <laughs> that we close up on, and I don't want to get right. the the carriage before the horse. But yeah. interesting thing to note: it's a great album, though. If not for you's great. If not for you was the only single didn't chart, and I made a note that it also appears on George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. And I listen to both versions. I much prefer Harrison's cover. And you do too, right? I do. Yeah. So that's something we saw in the 60s was an artist grabbing a Bob song, throwing in their record and doing something a little more commercial, a little more radio friendly. Harrison gets a pass for that, though, because I think he was in the studio with Dylan when he recorded it. So they're they're buddies. That's right. And future bandmates, which we'll talk about in the next episode. And then, of course, we'd be remiss if we did not mention... The Man and Me from New Morning, which I think most people our age and younger would know from The Big Lebowski. Absolutely. (laughs) The opening credits, right, in the bowling alley, when the camera's panning behind the the pins? Yes, it is. Okay. Take a woman like you to get through the man and me. Woo! I'm throwing rocks tonight. Mark it, dude. Great movie for anyone listening to your pod who's not a fantastic, has never seen it. 
that was my favorite Dylan song for a long while because I, I think I saw The Big Lebowski before I gave Bob's music a real fair shake. I should mention, if we're talking about Dylan in the movies, Wigwam, oh. which one of my favorite Dylan songs actually is in The Royal Tenenbaums, a Wes Anderson movie. Oh. And it plays kind of an integral part in that movie. So, yeah. yeah, okay. And Wes Anderson went real deep with that. He found like a, a diamond in the rough. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, shoot, well, why don't we just stay on movies? Because the album he did after... New Morning, was the soundtrack for the film Pat Barrett and Billy the Kid. So I recently watched that movie for the first time. That's a great movie. I love westerns right out of the gate. And you put a western with James Coburn and Chris Christopherson, yeah, count me in. Plus Harry Dean Stanton and Bob in a small role. This was like, man, this is my speed, dude. (laughs) I put this movie on by myself and I enjoyed it. It was good to just watch the performances. I will say it wasn't like the you know, the most, you know, wild plot or best action scenes or anything, but the performances were fun. I like yeah. seeing those actors. It's, yeah, it's not, it's not Peckinpah's best movie. Right. But, I mean, it's interesting, though, I think, in a lot of ways, that Dylan kind of hooked up with Peckinpah at that time point. Because Peckinpah's, I, I would make the case like a reactionary. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I like him. Yes. I, <laughs> I'm a fan. Yes, um, me too. But, like, I think that it's indicative of kind of where his headspace was at, too. I mean, it's, it's almost an affront to... The mentality of the sort of peace and love generation, yeah. you know, ultra-violent. Like, the most violent films are being made at the time. Yep. Up to that point, really. This uh, this movie had a lot of production problems, and Bob's role... They killed a lot of horses. Yes. <laughs> this is one of those movies that was made before you get the nice little saying at the end of the end credits of no animals were harmed. Yeah, this was this all was animals were harmed. <laughs> Any animal seen on screen was, was, harmed. was harmed during the filming of this movie. <laughs> Oh, boy. So, yeah, be careful about that if uh, that's a concern. It's not red paint. (laughs) My favorite scene with Bob in the movie is when Coburn holds them all up in the bar and he makes Bob go behind the bar and read off the labels of the canned food while he talks to the other guys. So the audio track is Dylan very quietly in the background reading, and then occasionally it will cut to him, and it'll be like, uh, beans, canned beans, uh, black beans, asparagus beans, you know? It's just like, this, it was so bizarre, it cracked me up. Now I want you to go over there to that shelf of airtights and give us a nice read. Not enough for us all to hear. Let's hear it. Uh, beans. Beans. Spinach. Eastern. Plums. Beans. Beef stew. Salmon. Climax tobacco. Hmm. Just keep on going there. Inky, fine quality tomatoes. Do you think that, that was, like, Peckinpah being intentionally morose? Like, I'm going to have the greatest songwriter of a generation just literally on camera reading about, like, off the back of labels? Like, I mean, here's the thing. If Peckinpah did that, thumbs up. Yeah. Five stars. Well done, sir. That's hilarious. So Bob had a small role in the film called Alias, and he did not have too many lines. So if you're looking for a movie where it's like a, a showcase of Bob's acting abilities, I would not say this is the right one. I guess I would point you to, what is it, Ronaldo and Clara, which I absolutely did not watch. I wouldn't, and I would wouldn't never point watch. anyone to Ronaldo and Clara. <laughs> <laughs> Do I see Dylan acting, watch his interviews? 
Oh, if you want to see? <laughs> I think that's what you did. Okay, that's yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So the best thing to come from that movie is the um, unintentional hit single. They didn't think this was going to be a hit, but "Knocking on Heaven's Door," which is used beautifully in the movie. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Upfront, that is my favorite dance song. Period. Yeah. It's a great song. But he's he's good when he's telling the story. Yeah. And you really get the feeling, and it, especially for a Western film, it oh, makes yeah. so much sense. It's, yeah, it's a beautiful song. Do you like the instrumental pieces or the other songs on the record? I own the album. I, I really yeah. like it. Yeah, we listen to that sometimes during dinner. Oh, it's, okay. It's a nice because it's not a lot of lyrics. It's you don't have to think about it. You just have yeah. it low, and then, yeah, no, we I like that album. That was released in July 1973. A couple of months later, he left Columbia and signed with Asylum Records, which was run by David Geffen. And that was sort of a big coup for Geffen. Okay. Geffen was famously an, a pretty artist-friendly executive in the 70s, and I think he was, he was friends with Bob and really pushed hard to get him. So when he went over to Geffen, Geffen wanted to do a reunion with the band. And we tabled our band discussion from the 60s to this one. So we're going to dive into Bob Dylan and the band for a little while here. But just before they released anything, his old record label, Columbia, put out a record just called Dylan in 73. You talk about outtakes and B-sides, you know, this was leftover scrap from Self-Portrait and New Morning. I didn't listen to this record and bother to listen to it at all. I don't really, I'm not big into outtake right. collections. And uh, they, they called it sort of a revenge album. It's just like, oh, you're leaving us? Well, we own some of these. We're going to still make some money off of you. Did you listen to that record? Have you ever heard it? I've listened to it in the past. Not for this. So oh, I couldn't, okay. I would sure. have to be reminded. Yeah, it's, I mean, forgettable. It shouldn't even count as a, as a proper release. It really isn't because he had no input in it. Yeah. I mean, it's not, there was, yeah. there was no artistic input at all on his part. Isn't so it crazy, kind of, like, how often studios just do yeah. that shit <laughs> yeah but I, I wouldn't call it even a proper Dylan yeah. album alright so let's move on and talk about Bob Dylan and the band okay the first album they put out is uh, Planet Waves January 1974 standout track from that that most people would know is Forever Young yep and that year 1974 they go out on tour and eventually release a live album called Before the Flood all of that coming on Geffen's Asylum label. After all that, Bob would return to Columbia. This was, I think, sort of him flexing his muscles to get a better deal from Columbia in the first place. I think he always wanted to be with Columbia. But anyway, we don't want to get too deep in the industry talk. What do you think of Planet Waves? It, it's a good album. I think, uh, you know, his wedding song is, I think, the stand up oh. from that. I love wedding song. Yeah. How come yeah, there are Forever Young also? There, there's two versions of Forever Young on there, right? Yeah, there's a like a slow and a fast. Okay. What's your preference? Probably the slow. Yeah. Forever Young. Forever Young. May you stay. Is that the one that gets on the radio? Oh, yeah, it is. Right. The one that gets on the radio is the Rod Stewart. 
Right. Which is really the, the bad Of course. Of the, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, like, when Dylan sings it, it's a, I, I think, a poignant song about being a father. Yes. When Rod Stewart sings it, somehow, it's like, I see white tigers in my head or something. Like, I see, like, this, like, just the most, just trite, like... I see he's singing to all his uh, 19-year-old groupies. Yeah. Just never get older. Always stay this age. Oh, God. <laughs> Is that 19? But anyway... So they put out a, a live album called Before the Flood, and he, like I said, goes back to Columbia, and upon returning in January 1975, releases what may be his best record, Blood on the Tracks. From what I've read, he was actually somewhat disappointed with the Planet Waves album and the tour. You know, it was a fairly commercial move to tour with the band. Felt maybe he's leaning on his past too hard. Because this is a theme that comes up. Right. Is he starts to be very insecure about leaning on the his past glories. And going back to Columbia, I found this quote from David Geffen uh, that speaks to what I'm just talking about, where he says, in response to Bob leaving Asylum and going back to Columbia, Geffen says, Bob Dylan has made a decision to bet on his past. So just really needling at Bob's probably uh, biggest insecurity uh, career-wise. So he responds by putting out Blood on the Tracks, which is by pretty much all accounts a masterpiece, and I think a lot of people would say his best record. Do you agree? I don't think so. Oh, interesting. I don't think so. Okay. It's primarily about his divorce, his impending divorce from his wife, Sarah. A couple of the standout tracks from that record, for me at least, are Tangled Up in Blue, which is a probably a close second for my favorite film. But all the while I was alone, the past was close behind. I've seen a lot of women, but she never escaped my mind, and I just grew. Idiot Wind, one of his most iconic hits. And then one I liked was called uh, Lily, Rosemary, and the Jack of Hearts. For me, everything you mentioned, also a huge fan of If You See Her Say Hello. Oh, okay. You're going to make me lonesome when you're gone. Great song. Yeah. yeah. These are very emotional songs. Yeah. I think like his, like his son said it was all about. Right. But then Dylan has said that it's not. Yeah, but is Dylan the most reliable source for his own story? You know, the question becomes, is it possible that what you're, you're hearing as a listener isn't so much an autobiographical, in a, in a lyrical sense, autobiographical, about like the specificities of his relationship with his wife? Mm-hmm. Or is it just a certain mood drove the creation of those songs, that it's a, it's a reflection of where they're at kind of at the moment, not necessarily being lyrically autobiographical? Yeah, I, I would say you're onto something, because in the books I've read about him, he would perform Idiot Wind in different ways depending on how he was feeling in concerts. Yeah. And one thing, one takeaway I've definitely gotten for Bob when he's putting records together is that his approach on songs on record is, the song on record is just that version of that song that day. Yeah. Whereas it's totally different a different day. It's not some, you know, grand statement of this is a definitive version. So... He puts out this record. It is a big hit, much-needed hit. I think it sort of blows out a lot of the insecurities he was having about his career being a little wobbly at the start of the decade. And again, that, you know, is he going to be a guy that just leans on his past? Blood on the Tracks rejects that. He's ready to move forward. 
with a project that he had been nagged about for a couple of years, uh, which is one of your favorites, The Basement Tapes. Yeah. So The Basement Tapes were recorded with the band after Bob had his motorcycle accident back in the 60s. He's laid up at his home, and the band basically moves in into the guest house, which is called The Big Pink, and they record all sorts of music, not just the music that would find itself on the basement tapes, but music that would find itself on all sorts of bootleg uh, compilations. Yeah. And also, the band's debut music album, from Music Pink. from the Big Pink. I think I mentioned on one of the pods that I, I ended up selling like almost all of my albums at one point yeah. when I was younger. That one did not, that made the cut. Okay. I, like, I'm going to keep this. There was something so so weird and so raw and so different than, I think, anything else that has been made in the second half of the 20th century. Okay. Like, it harkens back to just bizarre music. We talked about this on the, when we, before we started this kind of Dylan in the Decades, or the first pod we did where we were tasting his whiskey, that uh, from the the anthology of American folk music. Yes. And it's, what's interesting is any of these songs could find themselves on that. They're so weird and raw. Pretty much it's all just Dylan pulling these things out of... His knowledge base of yeah. that old, weird Americana music exactly. that he grew up on. Or at least, maybe not necessarily grew up on, but like in the early 60s before he got his record deal, he would he was famous for going through every anyone he yeah. knew, their record collections. There's some stories about him breaking into friends' houses yeah. just to go through their records and borrowing records and not giving them back. And I wouldn't be surprised grew up on to an extent also. Because I, mean, oh, sure. I guarantee you live in like rural Minnesota, yeah. listening to like the AM radio... There was only AM radio. Yep. It was all radio. <laughs> and hearing, I'm sure there was weird stuff that came on like variety shows Absolutely. and things. And, and so it's a singular album in a sense. And I think Robbie Robertson was talking about the fact that when he was performing it, they didn't know what was tra- like what were traditionals. Oh, okay. And what were these like just Dylan compositions that he was just pulling out his butt that were just that sounded. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's an interesting project. I would say probably not the first thing you should listen to if you're new to Bob, if somehow you have never heard of him before. That's uh, that's a pretty yeah. ambitious listen. I think it's interesting that he waited until after Blood on the Tracks kind of put him back on the map where he was just like, all right, I feel good about my present so I can you know put out this old compilation because this is one of the first things that was getting like crazy bootlegged. You know, there were versions of the basement tapes out for years. But I mean, I do, I will say, I think the interest in it is because it's it's like nothing else that was being put out. Yeah. Or really has been put out. Yeah. I was uh, not expecting the sound when I listened to it. There's a couple on there I liked. Levon Helm sings on Don't Y'all Tell Henry. And I really liked that one. I spied a little chicken down on his knees. The name's the song, Tiny Montgomery. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? Nothing was delivered, which is li- literally a guy pleading about the fact that, like, I don't know, something was supposed to be delivered. <laughs> Nothing was delivered, and he's just really <laughs> upset about it. I mean, these are, you know, they, they make sense in that sort of really, like, old, old, old Americana yeah. idiom. I think it holds up better than a lot of his other music, too. It doesn't sound of any time. Yeah, it feels uh, sort of out of time because that uh, traditionals seem to have that, yeah. you know, that very timeless aspect to them so staying on the band do you like music from the big pink i do do you like uh, a lot of the band's albums or have you listened to more than that so i'm not a huge huge fan okay um music from big pink isn't like i said it's in my car i listen to it pretty frequently uh, i'm a big fan of last waltz 
Oh, I, I generally yeah. I watch it most Thanksgivings because it was from oh, Thanksgiving. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think they make sense as a counterpart to Dylan in the late '60s. Yeah, directionally, I think they both. When you when you listen to their music too, it was a rejection of some of the both stylistically and in terms of content, kind of where the counterculture was going. So here, how about this? Does Bomb bring out the absolute best of the band? Well, I mean, music from Big Pink is largely Dylan. I mean, I'm trying to think. It's, yeah, it's a lot of Dylan covers. It's, right, it's almost exclusively Dylan covers. I don't know. I mean, Cripple Creek's an amazing song, and that's, okay. not, that's not a Dylan song. So okay. they're great in their own right. Okay, so probably maybe an easier question. Do you think the band brings out the best in Bob? No. Just because I think Bob just brings out the best in Bob. Yeah, I would say that's probably right. They don't bring out a bad side in him no, no, at no. all. It's good, yeah. yeah. For somebody who's known almost exclusively as a solo artist, it's interesting how good he is as a collaborator as well. Oh yeah, we're absolutely going to be talking about that aspect too. Yes, yeah. uh, from you know going back to you know Joan Baez at the very start of his career, to the band, and then I think of like all of the star-studded records he was making in like the eighties and right. early nineties. Those weren't always good, but right. you know people want to work with him. So the last thing on the band, well, just the the last waltz. You say you watch it every Thanksgiving. I haven't seen it all the way through, but I did watch a couple of his performances with the band, and they are great. Seems to have really good energy. You know, would you say that his appearance is among the highlights of the last waltz? He seems to be in good form. Yeah, I mean, Van Morrison's on that too. Yep, Neil Young. Which yeah, Neil Young. I mean, it's a. I think as concert movies go, for any any listener who hasn't seen it, I yeah. would say definitely seek it out actively. That's a top tier concert film. Yeah, I mean, it's Scorsese directed it. Yep, first of uh, a couple of Scorsese Dylan connections. True. Bob and the band. Interesting relationship starts when he goes electric, which is a very iconic part of his career, and concludes with The Last Waltz, which is iconically one of the best concert films ever. Well, one of the guys from the band left because of the... I know uh, Lev, uh, Levon Helm was out for a while. I think like, he left, yeah. It was, that was, I think that was because of the, the amount of blowback that they were getting when they were performing. Oh, yeah. He was literally afraid. Like, they were afraid for their lives. Yeah. Kind of thing. <laughs> and we don't... Appreciate again. We, we talked about this before. Like, we don't appreciate now what that meant to people. But like, I think yeah, it was Levon Helms. Yeah, he left for a while. He worked on an oil rig or something because he was afraid. Because <laughs> the oil rig was safer than touring with Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's funny. All right, so they close up the band collaboration. Bob moves back to um, a, you know his solo career, and he follows up Blood on the Tracks with an album that. Seems to have gotten almost as good of reviews. Desire. You talked a little bit about Desire in the first pod we did. That's a very strong follow-up to Blood on the Tracks. And it features a number of iconic songs right off the bat. The first one I think of is Hurricane, which is about the boxer Reuben Hurricane Carter, who was wrongly convicted of murder. And it took like some 20 years to get him out of jail. Bob raised money for his defense fund, you know, a couple of times. This was a case that was very uh, close to his heart, and it sort of harkens back to his song that we discussed a bit in our previous episode, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, where racial injustice seems to be the one, you know, I don't want to just call it political, but one, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a political cause that seems very close to his heart and seems to be something that provokes a strong reaction from Yeah. Some of that, I think, stems from the fact that Dylan strikes me as a very moral person. Yeah. 
And he's always seeking for that. I think I think that that, that runs in him. Like the sense of just like sort of a natural law kind of sense of morality. Yeah. How do you like the song Hurricane? I like the song a lot. It's one of my favorites. I think it's one of my favorites of, of the decade. Pretty lengthy song, but it rocks all the way through. The only questionable. I, part I know where you're going with this. Yep. The only questionable. I gotta bring it up because this is. It's something that might catch you off guard if you haven't heard it before, but near the end of the song, Bob uses the N-word, hard R. Yeah. As for the black folks, he was just a crazy nigga. No one doubted that he pulled the trigger. And though they could not produce the gun, the DA said he was the one who did the deed, and the old Algeria agreed. Given that the song is about injustice, yeah, and absolutely in defense of a man who's wrongly convicted. Is there anything problematic about Bob using that word in that context of the song, or does the context of the song sort of absolve yeah. you know, him from uh, you know the criticisms he might get for using? That I word? think the like is my name going to be on this podcast? <laughs> like, do you want the answer that's informed by like the current fashion of like just self righteous outrage at every turn currently? Or do you want the one that I think makes sense contextually? Well, of course we want the one the that real makes one. sense. Yeah, okay. the real yeah. answer. We're not we're You not can, empl- you can employ yet. me later if they <laughs> put my name on this thing. <laughs> I think that in the context of the song, and I think in the context of the time period as well, I think it's completely understandable and resolved, yeah. especially since he worked his ass off to try and get the guy... Yeah. Like, he makes a song popularizing the cause. In the context of the song itself, it's, it's a reflection of the attitude of like... Mm-hmm. Uh, uneducated or hate, hate-filled hate whites. Yep. And it's not, I mean, you know, no, it's completely acceptable in the context of the song. He and doesn't it, play at a concert anymore, really, does he? No. And because no, of, probably because of it. Yeah. And, and I think that's a shame. And at the time, nobody raised an eyebrow at it. People, I bet Hurricane Carter loved the song. <laughs> people allowed themselves, now it's 50 years ago, I guess. Yeah. But people allowed themselves 45, 50 years ago to stop and think about things in the context in which they were produced and think about the the intention of the person who did it as well. Big time. They don't do that anymore. Nope. So <laughs> now we're in a position where Dylan can't sing that song and probably can't even, probably can't even listen to it. No, or definitely whatever. wouldn't, definitely wouldn't yeah. get on the radio. It's a damn good song and, you know, he's got nothing to apologize for. So anyway, after Desire's released, he goes on what is probably his most famous tour outside of maybe the you know going electric one was the rolling thunder review which was sort of his brainchild he wanted to get back to the roots of like what he said who he is you know as a showman and he did his best to put together sort of a traveling circus where there was all sorts of music being played the shows on this tour were like four hour ordeals with music from different artists. Joan Baez returns to the fold. He would perform. Joni Mitchell went out on the first leg and, and would perform. I think Allen Ginsberg was just around and might come out and do spoken word stuff, I think. So it was, it was like a variety show. And I think he did that because he needed something from the road to keep him interested. Sure. You know? He definitely doesn't like doing the same songs every night in the same way every night. So I think the Rolling Thunder review was a big way of uh, preventing that from happening. One of the first Dill albums I had was the Bootleg Series Volume 5, oh. which was Rolling Thunder Review. Okay. Stellar album. 
Oh, I bet. I, I, I talked on the last one about how much I, I'm not a huge fan of Mr. Tambourine Man. Okay. The version he does on Rolling Thunder Review, the live version, is awesome. Oh, okay. I'll play yeah. a clip of that. That's great. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy and there is no place I'm going to. So if you could go back in time and see Dylan on one tour, would it be this one? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Or maybe maybe when he went electric, just to just because <laughs> like throw in the more booze. Well, I guess no, because no, not that, no, not more booze. Start, I start fighting people, and they, there were like fights breaking out in the audience between the people who were like pro yeah. electric Dylan and then the the folkies who were pitching a fit. And you know that oh, even if cause. even if they're outnumbered, you know that the folkies weren't. <laughs> oh, you right. know they were losing. Yes, like even if they were like in the majority, you know they were. Like, that would be being hilarious. slapped by with their own hush puppies. Right. I don't know. What they, I don't know that that seems like a something. The, yeah, they yeah. beware. That's funny. Martin Scorsese made a bizarre movie called Rolling Thunder Review: A Bob Dylan Story two years ago. Did you see that? Yeah. Okay. I didn't see it. I read a little bit about it, and you told me about it for a second. Can you sort of introduce what this movie is? Because this is weird. He didn't shoot any of the footage, obviously. Right. But what's bizarre is that he went really unconventional with it, and so at the beginning of the movie. I don't know if it's Dylan or who it is, but they quote Dylan Thomas talking about the fact that you can't trust a man unless they're wearing a mask, because if they're wearing a mask... And so, like, throughout the movie, obviously, the Rolling Thunder Review... I shouldn't say throughout the movie, throughout the tour. Dylan would wear, like, pancake makeup and stuff. Yep. And the idea was that the whole thing was was kind of that. It was a show, and you, you could trust what he was saying, because it, but it gets more bizarre that Scorsese starts to add layers to where he hired, like, an actor to play... I forget what he's supposed to be, like a... A producer or a writer, or he's an actor from like Europe or something, and he injects him into the the film. And Dylan talks about this guy like he was there, but he's completely made up. Yeah, and he says in the documentary. And then Sharon Stone talks about the yep. fact that she toured with him as like a groupie at the age of seventeen, and completely untrue. Yeah, like none of this is real. <laughs> so it's like a pseudo documentary. It's presented like a documentary, but it's largely fake. Is this just like an experimental movie? Like, what is the end goal of something like this? So, I'm a huge fan of Werner Herzog. Yes. And his documentary films. And they he does this, too. He's well-known. Okay. He never covers it up. He just, he stages scenes. And his thing is, there's the, the lowercase t-truth. Yeah. Which is just, here's a bunch of things that happened. Okay. And there's an uppercase t-truth that is grander than that. Oh, okay. And and actually, when he was when, when Herzog was told about what Scorsese had done with this, yeah. Herzog was like, I'll have to see that movie now. I won't try to do his like, Bavarian <laughs> accent, which is amazing. But he's like, he's like, I'll have to see that movie now yeah. because Scorsese's such a straightforward director. I'd be intrigued. To, like, I'm, he's like, I'm generally not a fan of his. I'd be interested to see how he did that or what he did with this. Yeah, I would I would think so, because, yeah, this is not something that strikes me from Scorsese's wheelhouse. You know, when I first glanced at it on Wikipedia, I was just like, oh, man, he's going back to the Dylan Well again. He's going to make yeah. another... Di- you know, I'll, I guess I'll see it. But then at second look, it was just like, oh, no, this is some weird experiment. Yeah. So I'll, I'll have to see it, too. I just... I just it doesn't it come off time. as experimental. Okay. It, it only becomes that way when you find out later on that it was staged and yeah. parts of it were written. Odd little piece of Scorsese's yes. library there. Alright, so let's circle back to Bob here. So, at the end of Rolling Thunder, in the books they're talking about how he just wanted to keep on adding more and more shows and the rest of the band is like, 
exhausted and they're sick of each other and they're starting to fight. One thing that's going to start to come up is that Bob is a crazy womanizer. Had all sorts of affairs and would have affairs with his backup singers, sometimes at the same time period, so you'd have jealousy issues and fights. There was lots of drama around him, and that really was a big part of the Rolling Thunder review. And a lot of the band, you know, wanted to call it a day. He wanted to keep going because I think he knew what was impending, which was his, finally, his divorce from Sarah Dillon in early 77 which was a crazy messy divorce that got really nasty. They had this big court battle, got into the tabloids, took years to unravel. I think Jacob has said that it's been, you know, one of the most stressful parts of his childhood and you know, the you know, the family's breaking down. It also put Bob in some financial trouble cuz Sarah got paid. Now, the other thing that was causing Bob some uh, financial difficulty around this time was the movie we mentioned a few times before already, Ronaldo and Clara, was released in January 78. It is a four-hour mess. It totally flopped. Uh, critics hated it. You know, nobody bought tickets, and he just lost a shit ton of money. So, like, he was finally, you know, in some financial trouble in, in, in 78. Did you actually see Ronaldo and Clara? I've seen clips of it. Oh, I, was, like, I was looking at, like, yeah, so, like, that Ginsburg's in it. Yep. It looks to be, you're talking about like experimental. Right. They're not good experimental. Yeah, everything I've read about it strikes me as uh, insufferable. Yeah, well, like yeah. Dylan's novel. I think it, yeah. Dylan was largely, yeah. Tarantula is, lar- is sure. like largely. He's a guy that like really needs to just be, stay in yeah. his lane of music. I guess we don't recommend Ronaldo and Clara, even though neither of us have seen it all the way through. But, all right. To recoup some of this money that he's lost, he needs to go out on tour again. He needs to sell some records. So he gets a new record in the store called Street Legal in June 1978 and immediately goes out on tour. And the tour, we'll get into shortly, but the tour was a very commercial tour. It was meant to drive ticket sales and to sell records. Unfortunately, Street Legal, not quite the uh, seller that uh, Desire and Blood on the Tracks were. How do you like Street Legal? It's not just an, an outright stinker like right. self-portrait. The only song to me that stands out is Senor. Yes, Senor right. Tales of Yankee Power is a good song. I also like the opener, Changing of the Guards. Would you call it a decent record, or do you think it's just kind of a loss? I think, I, we've said this before, if another artist put it out, I think it would be considered like a, like a okay uh-huh. record. For Dylan, it's not a great it's right. not a great. So he goes out on tour to promote the record, Makes a live album called Bob Dylan at Budokan in April 79. They, they called this tour Vegas Bob because this was definitely a greatest hits show. Yeah. But to keep himself interested, he would do different arrangements of his old songs. So he would play the old catalog that people would want to hear, but he would arrange them differently. My dad saw this show when it came through Chicago, and he said uh, he didn't recognize like any of the songs until like halfway through because they were all arranged differently. And that's the thing that Bob's been doing up until this day. You know, we definitely saw that when we saw him on tour in 2009. So, all right, we finally arrived. We got a blow whistle. The train is approaching the station. affairs he had with several 
of his uh, backup singers. One thing I did not mention is that a lot of his backup singers were black. And a lot of them had connections to their churches. And one of the things that Bob started talking to some of these women with was faith and what it meant to them and if they were saved. And somehow through some of those conversations, the idea of being saved and finding God became a big priority for him. And at some point in late 78 or early 79, he does this complete bizarre left turn where he becomes a born-again Christian. And we're going to talk about it in the next episode we do a little more because he puts out three albums. One we'll talk about today and the next two in the next episode that are all Christian worship music. And I was looking for some interviews from him, and I found one he did with Playboy magazine in March 1978 with an interesting poll quote where he said, I have some new songs that are unlike anything I've ever written. And that might be referring to Street Legal, because that was put out just a few months later, but part of me thinks he might have been having some yeah. some thoughts about uh, religious songs down the road. In the interview, he talks about religion quite a bit. He talks about Christ and the devil, and he also says... I've never felt Jewish. I don't consider myself Jewish or non-Jewish. And then, sure enough, in August 1979, he releases his first album of Christian music called Slow Train Coming. And we'll talk about the album in a second, but the religion he eventually found was definitely a born-again sort of church, but the church itself was fairly progressive. It wasn't like some hell and brimstone sort of church. But he found a book that was, it was a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, written by a guy named Hal Lindsey, who's still alive and preaching today, uh, which is absolutely end times Christianity. The idea being that we were going to see the apocalypse in our lifetime. And Bob definitely bought into that, or at least to the extent that he buys into anything. And I think this weird turn to religion was a result of the fact that the 70s were a really tumultuous decade for him. His marriage collapsed. He had a very excessive lifestyle. He still had insane showbiz pressures with the movie that fails and all these records that are either up or down. And he's a guy that didn't do anything half-assed. If he found something he was interested in, he threw himself completely into it. That's why I think it was genuine, because he wasn't just kind of sampling some things or some bible verses he threw himself into the ideology he was going to church regularly he was taking part in bible study and when he took slow train coming out on the road he would preach in between songs and do like a pastor act is this the most bizarre part of his entire catalog no i think it's honestly like when you listen to all of his stuff and you look at his rejection of the 60s counterculture I think this is the natural progression. Like I said this before, I think he's a supremely moral person. I think at heart he's a relatively conservative or moderate individual. Okay. And I think as the flower of the 60s bloomed and then eventually started to rot, Mm -hmm. I think that he saw that as like moral decadence and as being sort of, and I think this was an about face and a total rejection of that. Yeah. Not just of, you know, the music and of the sort of culture, but as of like the entire culture. Because like, the 70s was a decadent decade. Absolutely. Well, people talk about that being in the 80s, but 
for show business in particular, yeah. you know, the Studio 54, all those glory years were in the 70s. Yes, absolutely. And the 80s in a lot of ways was a supremely conservative decade, too. Oh, really. totally. Yeah, so, but I think, it, I think it actually makes sense. It doesn't mean it's great. Yeah. But it, slow train comes good. Like, it doesn't mean that the, yeah. It, it, you're saying it's not hard to see why he found himself here. Right. Okay. Supposedly he saw Christ. Prophetically, in like an Arizona, in like in like Tucson. The story I that's have. Where, when, when Christ <laughs> is going to come to you, it's in it's in Tucson, Arizona. Oh man, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely in that city. The story I have uh, that I recall from these books is that uh, he was at a concert in '78, and a fan threw a crucifix up on the stage. Yep. And he didn't typically pick things up that people throw on the stage, but he picked that one up. You know, hearkening back to what you were saying about the 60s, one thing I do remember from Don't Look Back is that they are talking about religion at one point, and he says, I don't believe in anything. Yeah. You know, which is sort of a 20-somethings, a you know, approach to, right. to religion. And he's also a little older now, too. I know that uh, John Lennon and Keith Richards made a lot of fun of him for this, for this move. Keith Richards called him the, the, the prophet for profit implying that this was some sort of commercial wow. move, which I think is a little bizarre. Coming from a Rolling Stone, that's uh, adorable. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I always thought that was a weird criticism because although this album was like a sort of a surprise hit, the concerts, he had a hard time filling seats once people started realizing what he was doing because right. he felt in the last tour he had done the greatest hits show. So he's just like, I don't have to do these songs anymore. I did them last time, and now I'm only going to do worship songs. Or he would do like knocking on heaven's door, or or songs that had some sort of religious yeah. c- connection. So it was like a church service, and fans weren't expecting that, especially after his last go round. But let's let's talk about let's focus on the album very briefly okay. here. Despite all this weirdness, I love this record. Yeah, uh, there's one or two songs on there that I would pass on, but almost every track here I think is really good. Gotta serve somebody was the hit from the record it was a, a top 40 hit hit number 24 and that was his last hit of the 70s it was his last appearance in the top 40 so he never had a hit single after that until i think i was gonna a, say right we'll get to that in our last episode he had some you know he had number one with the murder most foul but you may be blind but Eventually, in his you know, radio career, this was the last time that he had it. You gotta serve somebody. I think it's a good song. Yes, you are. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. No, to your point, it's, I think it's a good album. Yeah. And it's coherent. Like I see where he's, I see where he's going with it. It's there's a balance I think between what he's doing music, trying to do musically, and then the the, 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 the Christian message. Yeah, that right. he loses I think. Eighties. Oh yeah, right. Once the other two. Yeah, but yeah, the worship, music, and the theme of religion and God definitely connect all of the songs on the record. But melodically, you know, one song just very comfortably segues into the next one I think because the production here is very good and I have to think that's partially because the, the guitarist on this record is Mark Knopfler from the Dire Straits. Yeah. Dire Straits had just sort of been introduced to the world a couple of years before with their big hit Sultans of Swing. Dylan really liked that and he was one of Mark's heroes so he 
invited him to be a part of the record, so Mark Knopfler's really excited about it. And then he goes into the studio and finds out all of the songs are about God with praise music. <laughs> That's what we're going to make, Mark. <laughs> Thank you for coming to help me. You know? I'm glad you're a part of this. You know, There are stories that Bob would try to preach to people in the studio with him. I, I imagine you'd have to hang with him a little bit on yeah. that if you wanted to be part of the record, but... It does speak to his earnestness, though. Right, I Again, don't think... Against, like, what Keith Richards That's or John Lennon are saying. Yeah, I don't think this was a commercial endeavor. I think this is genuinely where he was at. So you like this record, too. Are there any, any songs on here that jump out at you besides Gotta Serve Somebody? Because that's not even your favorite one, right? There's a couple others on there. I like Precious Angel. Yep. I like, uh, what's the first one on, on side B? Gotta Change the Way You Think. That's, yeah. Gonna Change the, uh, My Way of Thinking. Gotta Change My Way yeah. of Thinking. Yeah. I like uh, that one. Yep, no, I'm a fan. And then also, we were talking about Man, Man Gave Names to All the Animals, which is kind of like the kid's song on the album. Yeah. But it has a cool twist at the end. And I would Go on. everybody to... Yeah, he goes through, and it's kind of a nursery rhyme kind of thing where he's talking about, you know, this animal growls, whatever, he's called a bear. And everything, you know, it's, it's, it's an A-B-A-B kind of rhyme thing. And then he gets to the end where he says, saw a slither animal go behind a tree by the lake. It just ends. And it's like, oh, that's a reference to the fall. Of, right. Of, of, Man or whatever in the garden. Man gave names to all the animals in the beginning, long time ago. He saw an animal as smooth as glass, slithering his way through the grass. He saw him disappear by a tree near a lake. slick the way he he does it at the end it just ends and that's just song just ends right there and it's a comment on that even though he found religion he hadn't lost a step lyrically because i think another criticism of artists finding religious right. music is that the quality immediately drops off and they lose all semblance of writing good songs dylan's compositions here and lyrics here are still very yeah. strong if you don't get hung up on the fact that they're all about religion yeah all right well, to put a bow on Bob's religious discussion here, is that I'm going to read from something that uh, he said on stage while touring to promote Slow Train Coming. Because what, what harkens back to his last tour of the 60s with the going electric, where he was getting booed and jeered, he was also getting booed and jeered and chanted at during the Slow Train Coming album, or tour, I should say, because people weren't expecting, you know, all the religious songs and then all the religious messaging. And uh, he was getting really bad concert reviews as well. And at one point when he was in, where was he? He was in Tempe, Arizona. And the crowds were chanting rock and roll at him because <laughs> they wanted rock and roll. So just imagine a crowd chanting rock and roll. Which, to be clear, he never really did anyway. Right, yeah. <laughs> never. Right. So they're chanting chanting that at him and he says and I'm not going to do my impression of him because it's too much here but he says if you want rock and roll you go down and rock and roll you can go and see Kiss and you can rock and roll all the way down into the pit you want to rock and roll I'll tell you what the two kinds of people are doesn't matter how much money you got there's only two kinds of people there's saved people and there's lost people yeah remember I told you that you may never see me again you may not see me but sometime down the line you remember you heard it here that Jesus is Lord. 
every knee shall bow. Can you imagine seeing him in concert and that scene playing out? Getting it from Dylan at that time period, you know, Catholic schoolboy that I and you... (laughs) That's right. I just feel like I would immediately do a sign of the cross. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. Dylan? Like, all right. This would... This would have been one of the tours. If I could go back in time and see him on tour for this one, it would have to be this show, because I have to imagine that was an absolute spectacle. <laughs> this would continue with him for a couple of years, because he didn't—he wasn't like Bowie or Lady Gaga or Madonna, who would sort of put on a character costume yeah. for a record and then drop it yeah. a year later. Like, he, this was not a costume for him. This was now a lifestyle. So he threw himself into this, and this religious phase would last for a couple of years, so we're going to have to pick up on this when we start our next episode, which will be Dylan in the 80s. Do you have anything else for Slow Train coming? I was pleasantly surprised by how good... Like, I, had, I had listened to some of it years and years and years ago. Yeah. Did not like it. Thought yeah. it was just you know, garbage and, and, and listening to the entire thing all the way through with, with an exception of maybe one or two songs. It's a really good Dylan album. I think so, too. It's a damn good record. It's one of my favorites. To be fair, I find it interesting that so many, like, people who are Dylan fans who are maybe of more of a conservative bent would have no yeah. problem listening to, like, Maggie's Farm, yeah. which is clearly about capitalism, or, like, these things. But then the second that it goes into this, like, for those of his fans who are maybe more of the leftist, Ill, yeah. they have such an issue with the fact that he... He starts talking about Christ in his music. Oh, that's interesting you say that, because, you know, I'll, I'll have to find the clip of it, but I remember years ago, you know, I'm, I talked about this in one of our Dylan episodes already, I'm a fan of Christopher Hitchens, yeah. and he made an appearance on someone's talk radio show, I think it was Laura Ingram, and the music she played to introduce him was something from Dylan's Christian period, and Hitchens said that this era of Dylan is his favorite stuff. And, you know, Hitchens is, was famously an atheist. And, you know, Laura Ingram probably played that track to try and goad him into saying something disrespectful because she's conservative and she's playing the worship music and she's like, I'm going to, you know, kind of needle Hitchens. And Hitchens is just like, no, this is some of his best stuff. I don't think any other host in the United States would set up this debate with Dylan's Studio Gospel CD, which is one of, uh, one of my favorites, okay? Because this is Bob Dylan embracing, as he embraced all different genres of music, gospel. It's funny, though, I have to say it, uh, it's, he, he never sings more beautifully than in this phase of his life. I, see, I just needed Christopher Hitchens. Just If I could just <clears throat> get him to say that, then the debate is over. We've gone on for a while here. Let's wrap it up with our favorites. If you're ready... You can go first with your top three favorite Bob Dylan albums of the 1970s. All right, so Desire, Blood on the Tracks, Basement Tapes. I think that would be the conventional approach. Yeah. Is just three albums right in the row, mid-70s. Is mid-70s Dylan more impressive than, like, mid-60s Dylan to you? Oh, it's more listenable, like repeat listenings. I can put on... Big time. Yeah, I can, put, I can put on mid-70s Dylan. Like I said, in the, I keep a lot of it. I, I think I, have both, I don't have blown the tracks, but I have Desire and Basement Tapes in my car. Yeah. You can listen to that like while you're driving, and it's it's 
it, it, it has a it rocks. Absolutely, I fully believe, and you know, this probably puts me out of step with most uh, Dylan fans, but I think the heights that Dylan reached in the '70s artistically are much more enjoyable on repeat listen in the '70s than he, uh, than it was in the '60s. And, okay, I'll say mine. My three favorites are Blood on the Tracks, Desire, and Slow Train Coming. Yeah. You know, and I would keep any of those three in my car for repeat listens. Let's get into uh, our top five favorite songs. Okay. Dylan in the 70s, top five favorite songs. So this is more difficult, because I think if you look at album to album, his is in terms of consistently good albums, he was better in the 60s. With the yeah. exception of maybe one album, right? his first one in the 60s. Yep. They're all stellar, just as, as albums. They're very good. They're very solid. Yeah. 70s is a lot more hit or miss in terms of as an album, but he put out a lot of really solid songs. So it's more, this is more difficult, but so... I love Wigwam. <laughs> wow, that hits your top five. Yeah, it does. Impressive. Okay, from Self Portrait. All right. It's a fun, I feel like it. there's such a mood that he establishes in that song. Anyways, uh, Man and Me. Yep. Forever Young. Isis and Wheels on Fire. Oh, Wheels on Fire from the Basement Tapes. Yes. Okay. Good collection there. Yeah, speaking of his songs individually, I like all five of these and several others more than pretty much my top five from the last episode. Sure. Individual songs, these are, I think, much stronger. Like I said earlier, Knocking on Heaven's Door is my favorite Bob Dylan song. Hurricane, I think, is an absolute masterpiece. The Man in Me, and I guess Big Lebowski influenced us both a lot, but I love The Man in Me. Tangled Up in Blue, I think, is probably his best just rock and roll song. Yeah. And frankly, I like Gotta Serve Somebody. Yes, it's, it's a it's a good beat. Uh, I you know I like Mark Knopfler a lot, so I like that I recognize him really on that whole album. Uh, so those those are my top five. Real quick, let's talk about Man and Me because it's the I think yeah, it's, yeah, the, yeah. it's the only one that's on both our lists. Right? Uh, yeah, Hurricane's not on yours. No. Okay. Yeah, Man yeah. and Me. That's yeah, yeah. the one. I I think it works really well because it's it's love songs are either usually really saccharine or they're really fucking sad. Yeah. Man in Me works because it's a not sugar sweet love song. And it's yeah. one of the most like dude oriented like love songs. He's talking about like like just being around you brings out this the the, the man in me. Like yeah. maybe I you know it's a uh, you make me a better man, you know, you bring out yeah. the best in me and it's yeah. right and it's not sappy. It seems to be like him identifying his own internal emotions about yeah. being around this person. And his yeah. faults. And yeah. how it complements those faults and brings out a better... Yeah. Absolutely. It's a, great, it's a great song lyrically, too. Very good. Very good. Well, then you know what? That's what's going to play us out. will be the man in me. All right. So, looking forward to Dylan Through the Decades Part 3, the 1980s. Anything you're looking forward to or not looking forward to? <laughs> uh, uh, infidels. Infidels, I mean, one of my favorites. The Shining, we'll, we'll talk about that. It's yep. The Shining. Hold on, I'm trying to think if there's anything else in the... I haven't even started listening to them yet, so... Well, we'll get the Wilburys. Oh, yeah. We okay. Know. Big time. We're going to get him, uh, his participation in uh, We Are the World yeah. and also Live, Live Aid, Aid, Farm Aid, and all that. All right, just uh, some recommendations and citations here. Uh, the books I used for research on this were Dylan's Memoirs Chronicles, Volume 1. A book I recommend strongly is Down the Highway, The Life of Bob Dylan, which is by Howard Sunez. That's uh, 
very well received, very readable book. The thing with Dylan is that his life is so expansive and there's so much yeah. that it's really hard to get it all together. But this that book does a very good job of it, and so does Bob Dylan Behind the Shades Revisited by Clinton Halen. So if you're looking to learn more about Bob, I would recommend either of those books. And talking about the movies we were discussing earlier, I think any fan of concert movies, including myself, should really see The Last Waltz all the way through. I need to make a point to do that. And I guess as a curiosity, that Rolling Thunder review about Dylan's story by Scorsese from a couple of years ago, I think that would be an interesting piece as well. So, with all that, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Looking forward to Dylan in the 80s and to play us out. Top five for both of us, The Man in Me. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Play That Podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash play that podcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash play that rock and roll. Lots of great supplemental material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms. As play that rock and roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four. Please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 